With over 12 million industrial robots operating in manufacturing facilities and warehouses across the globe, the same ominous question often seems to come up. Will robots take all of our jobs? There is no simple answer, but the scenario of a fully robotic workforce is often hugely exaggerated. While there are a lot of things that can help us with, like making factory floors safer and more efficient, and of course taking care of those pesky repetitive tasks, there are some things robots just don't do well. Things such as perception, unstructured manipulation, social intelligence, and creativity. To take advantage of these differences, a trend in industrial robotics over the last several years has been towards people and robotics working side by side together. To dive more deeply into the dynamic collaboration between human workers and the machines they work alongside, today I'll be talking with Clara Vu, co-founder and chief technology officer of Veo Robotics about industrial automation and the future of robotics. Clara, welcome to The Tech Between Us. Hi, thanks for having me. But Clara, as we were talking about earlier, these current cobots aren't necessarily the typical robots you see in videos building your next car. Clara, can you tell us a little bit about how you define the term cobot and describe some of the current capabilities of today's cobots? Sure. Well, in the industrial automation market, the term cobot is typically used to refer to what is more formally known as power and force limited robots. And these are a kind of robots that were popularized by universal robots. Essentially, they are they're kind of six degree of freedom industrial arms that look a little bit like the um, the other industrial arms you would see in factories, but they're typically smaller and lighter and they have uh torque sensing in their joints. So essentially, when they make contact with something, they they know it and then they can stop. So um, these can be used, this power and force limiting is one method of making safe interaction between human and robots possible, essentially because the robots can't hit you very hard. Um, they literally define, you know, how much force is it okay, and that's why it's power and force limited, um, for a robot to apply in a, in a collision with a human. And so that that's one form of collaboration. But the same safety standards that define that power and force limiting or cobot type collaboration actually also define um, some other methods of achieving safe collaboration with humans and robots, one of which is the one that uh, speed and separation monitoring, which is the one that we work on here at Veo. So really what you're saying is for, you know, a typically considered a cobot today, we're actually limiting the functionality of a robot, limiting its capabilities just to make it safer to be around humans. That's right. Sort of inherently because of, you know, physics and momentum, this power and force limited technology is, is limited to robots that are, are smaller and lighter and slower. And that is, that's a small portion of the industrial automation market at the, I think about 80 to 90% of, of robots that are sold for manufacturing are, are the standard industrial robots, which are typically bigger, stronger, faster. They can carry more weight. They can move more quickly and they can have much longer reach than human arms, all of which are things that are restricted by that power and force limiting technology. And I totally understand why we would want to, you know, limit the the capabilities just to be around humans. But out of curiosity, what would happen if we tried to place, you know, a human in a, in a more traditional industrial robot in proximity? I'm going to imagine not great things for the person, um, but what about the robot itself? Would the robot, uh, how would the robot react to something like that? Well, you know, the robot wouldn't react to something like that because when we talk about robots, you know, we often have in our minds the science fiction robots that have, you know, sensing and intelligence and all that. When you talk about a robot in an industrial automation sense, 
is basically big hunks of steel held together by motors and some path planning. So those robots have no awareness of what is going on in the environment around them. And if, if you tell them to move from point A to point B, you know, they're going to move their two tons of steel from point A to point B, and they're going to do it quickly, and they don't really care what gets in the way. Um, so in order to make those systems safe, you, you have to give those, those industrial arms um, some of the other qualities that we think about when we think about robots is you have to give them perception and intelligence. You have to build sensors and algorithms that are capable of understanding their surroundings and, you know, making sure that that robot knows that there's someone there and they need to slow down or stop. So, so, so things really do need to change if we want to truly collaborate with, you know, traditional industrial robots. So, Claire, I mean, Veo seems to be taking more of a, of a holistic view to the factory floor. I mean, talking less about the robot itself and, you know, more about the overall environment. Can you talk a little bit about your vision at Veo and, and how you're going about making pretty much any robot collaborative? Yeah, absolutely. So, when we, when the, the goal of Veo, we looked at this, you know, we looked at this market and we saw that that power and force limiting was was great. It was expanding the reach of industrial automation, but, but again, limited that, you know, most of the time, the reason you want a robot in the first place is you want to do something that a human physically can't do. Um, and so we wanted to extend this collaboration to those larger, uh, more powerful robots. And the way we do this is it, it's, it's something that's very simple in theory and very complicated in practice. Um, it's called uh, speed and separation monitoring. And basically what it means is that a robot that's moving is dangerous. A robot that's stopped is safe. So you have to make sure that at all times you maintain enough distance between a moving robot and a person so that you can bring the robot to a stop before it would make contact with the person. And you do that by perception, by placing sensors in the environment that can see the robot and see people and essentially know where people are and where it's safe for the robot to go and not to go. But what you mentioned is this more holistic view. And what that really comes down to is you know, th there's a lot more dangerous things in an industrial work cell than the robot arm itself. Um, the, the tooling that the robot carries on the end of its arm to do work with can be dangerous. Um, the robot might be on a rail and it has clamps that keep it in place that are dangerous. There might be a saw blade or a press or another piece of equipment in the, in the work cell that is dangerous. And so you need to really think about all of these safety hazards. And the cobots that you were discussing earlier, that's one of the challenges there is they make the robots safe, but they can't really do anything for those other hazards. But this also plays into the idea of perception and intelligence that we were talking about earlier, that, you know, when you think of a robot as an intelligent system, if you think of it from that perspective, the, the mechanical arm isn't really the robot. The robot, the intelligent system in a factory is really the work cell. It's all these different pieces of equipment that are that are that are working together to complete a process step to achieve a goal. Just like for us as humans, you know, we have arms, but we also have you know fingers and heads and all these other parts of our. I mean, we and we use them all to do work. The arm by itself, without a hand and a body and a brain, is not really very much use. So, really, what you're saying, Claire, is in in order for us to be able to take advantage of the the great things that robots can do, you know, the motion, the speed the weight capabilities. I mean, not only do we have to take look at the, the robotic arm, the work environment, but also actually, you know, I mean, the, the other pieces of equipment, what it's doing, you know, how it's doing it, and, you know, combine all together, make that entire area as safe and as efficient as possible. That's right. It really is. When I, when I came to industrial automation um, with, when I start, when I 
uh, co-founded Veo Robotics with uh, one of my co-founders had a lot of experience in industrial automation. My experience was with autonomous mobile robots. Um, and and it, and what, what struck me after I kind of looked at the space, for, I was realizing all of a sudden that, you know, the work cell is the robot. The autonomous system is the work cell. And really, when you think about perception and intelligence and actuation, you need to think of it holistically in terms of that whole work cell. The EKI 1511 series of serial to Ethernet device servers provides an economical solution for connecting RS-232 or RS-422-485 serial devices such as PLCs, meters, and sensors to industrial Ethernet local area networks while also providing operations such as COM port redirection. To find even more content from Advantech, visit mauser.com slash Advantech. So you had mentioned that in order to look at the work cell as an overall unit. You've got uh, different types of sensors everywhere. Uh, you've got cameras up. You know, what types of sensors are you guys using? Are you uh, And what types of cameras are you guys using traditional, you know, I mean, vision cameras and, and, and motion sensors? Or, or, or what do you have uh, in that area? So we use time of flight depth sensing, which lets you basically we get a 3D or each sensor provides a two and a half D image, a depth image of a, a pixel array, kind of like an RGB camera, but with every pixel, instead of getting a color, you get a distance to the nearest object along that ray. And the reason we chose depth sensing is incredibly important because you need to know where things are, right? You need to know that space is, so knowing, oh, that's, that's a really pretty color. You don't need to know that. You need to know how far away is that thing. And so there are, of course, lots of algorithms for pulling depth information out of 2D images. But again, you know, when you're building for safety, you need something that is, that is fail-safe, that you can build fail-safe. And specifically, time-of-flight sensing has predictable failure modes, which is very important to us. And we, in fact, built custom depth sensors, though. We couldn't use an off-the-shelf sensor because the safety requirements, essentially, as I said, you need to be fail-safe. So you can't have a situation where um, a bad pixel can lead to an unsafe situation. So our, our sensors actually have two redundant imagers in them. So you can essentially do validation on a per-pixel level. And these sensors are placed around the work cell. So that's, again, they're not placed on the robot arm for the same reason as I usually explain. You, you don't have your eyeballs on your fingertips for a reason. Um, again, getting back to that holistic view. So those sensors are placed around the work cell, observing the work, the robot and the people working in the, in the work cell and providing that 2.5D depth images, which you then can use to do a 3D reconstruction of the volume inside the work cell with very high reliability. And you're able to do this you know, fast enough to be able to control a or, or you know manipulate a robotic arm or actually I guess really turn off a robotic arm as it's moving across the work area? Uh, yes, that's right. And thanks to modern processing power. Um, I mean, this is a classic. This You could not have done this five or 10 years ago because, you know, crunching through that much 3D data in real time is it was just not feasible. But now, you know, we have processors that have the capacity to do that kind of computation in, in, a, in a real time way. One area of focus for, you know, machine learning and is the, actually in the area of machine vision. I mean, there's a gazillion solutions out there for object recognition, you know, defect analysis, facial recognition. I mean, the list just goes on. However, I mean, because of the environment you're in, I mean, you'd mentioned that, I mean, you're not using machine learning at all. 
That's right. We're not. And that's because um, for a safety system in that, that for industrial robotic safety, according to standards, which are, and these standards are very, very strongly um, uh, followed in this industry. Um, people take it very, very seriously. The first thing anyone would ask us when we were just a baby startup starting to talk about, you know, that, that we were starting a company to solve this problem, they will say, well, are, are you certified? And that was because that's people take this very seriously, and that's why there are actually very, very few industrial accidents. Very few people are harmed by robots, and because people take it very seriously. And so, you know, we needed a system that was going to meet the standards. And we, one of the things that the safety standards that we comply with do not allow machine learning techniques. And that's really an extension of what I was saying before about deterministic failure modes. So when you build a system and you want to get a standards agency to sign off on it, you have to say, we understand the situations in which our technology will fail. And we have built in safeguards to detect those those conditions. And basically, you can al- you can always stop the robot. That's always a safe thing to do. So we will stop the robot if we detect that there's a person too close to it, but we'll also stop the robot if any of the pieces along the way detect any kind of failures. So machine learning notoriously um, does not ha- is very hard to define the situations in which it will fail. And there is an entire you know, branch of research into trying to do better there. But generally, as a startup, you're trying to build a product, you need to, to, to not condition the, the success of building your product on the, on the successful conclusion of an outstanding research area. And so in the future, it may be possible to incorporate machine learning into systems like this. But um, right now, it's really not. They're just not reliable enough and predictable enough. So we use a variety of algorithmic techniques that are you know, rooted in generally in uh, computational geometry and 3D analysis, but that we've, of course, uh, come up with a number of, of techniques specific to our system um, as well. Yeah, I was just thinking, it, it sounds like really in order to, to really to do what, you, what your systems need to do, you know, they've got to be fast, reliable, and repeatable. And so it sounds like a lot of, of custom algorithms, uh, probably very little off the shelf. Yeah, that's right. There, there are very strict rules around uh, use, use of third-party um, software in particular. So where a lot of the world that's doing computer vision, it's all, you know, building little pieces on top of a, you know, a large chunks of open source infrastructure that are out there. Our system is really uh, designed very differently that we that we have to take little, you know, we have to take things that we have, we can either prove or test to be extremely reliable, and then do build almost all of our own software using basically processes and techniques that that are compliant. So it seems like functional safety really is the root of, of, of a lot of the how you go about doing things as far as, I mean, at Reveo Robotics. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, functional safety is, is table stakes in this industry. People take safety very seriously and they, they want, you know, manufacturing knows that they need systems that are going to keep people safe. And that really makes this, you know, people have been building grad student demos of systems like ours for, for a really long time. You know, you take a couple of connects and you see a person and you stop the robot and isn't this nice? (laughs) But to build something that people can literally trust their lives to is a whole different world. And it requires really a different way of engineering from the ground up. I mean, that's something that we um, that we established very early on when we recognized that that these safety meeting these safety standards were going to be critical for our business and really for the um, for robotics in general. I mean, that was something that for me, um, I've worked in robotics for over 20 years. And really, what I always say is that building robots for 20 years gives you a deep appreciation for human beings. 
And so I think you mentioned you mentioned earlier how human robot collaboration is is really where a lot of the value of these robotic systems it comes into play because, you know, robots are there. There, there's a lot of things we can do. They can't do. They're not as flexible. They're not as. They don't have judgment. They don't have dexterity. They don't have all these wonderful human qualities that we have, but they can be bigger and stronger and faster and more repeatable. And so the only way you're truly going to unlock the value of of these of these enormous powerful machines is by figuring out how to let them be safely with humans. And that means, and functional safety is how we do that. Functional safety is one of a number of kind of regulatory schemes that, you know, the way I think about it is these are ways that we as humans have agreed to do engineering when human lives are at stake. You know, when you think about it as an engineer, the standard can't be your system can never fail in any possible way. Because any engineer who's ever built anything knows that that's impossible. So the question is, how do you do this morally? You know, how do you build something where that's going to be trusted to keep somebody safe? And and really, these standards give us guidelines about you know what what we as a society have decided is like the the right thing to do when you're when you have those kind of stakes. So you have to do that from the beginning, and you also like our algorithms are designed to be fail safe from the ground up. To take all the functional safety standards, the principles, really, it is from the ground up, from the from the before you even write your first line of code, you have to understand them and take them into consideration with any aspect of your engineering process. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you just don't build a safety system the same way you build a, an app. So it's more than the adding two lines of code after uh, after sign off. Yeah, that's right. You can't you know be copying stuff off Stack Overflow and you know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Brad Mini Change Connectors from Molex have pioneered the market for rugged sealed connectors industrial applications since 1968. Today, these products represent one of the largest portfolios of connectivity solutions that help define the standards in the industrial market. See the latest from Molex by visiting mauser.com slash Molex. It's really been a fascinating journey for me and and very for a lot of the engineers we've hired I mean some of the engin- some of our team has previous experience with safety standards and working in a regulated environment some of them don't but we sort of would look for you know you can tell you have the sort of cowboy engineers who just want to make something work and doesn't really matter how and we we sort of look for it from in the early in the in the interview process we would establish we're like you know we do these very specific things here and we mean it and we take this seriously and so we kind of would weed out people that were not interested in that word but then you get some engineers who have never worked in a regulated environment but the ones that are really interested in building things right, making them reliable. You know, it, it's actually a fascinating engineering challenge for, for the right kind of, of engineer. And, uh, and a lot of engineers that we've, that we've brought in here have really um, risen to that challenge. That's terrific. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're clearly, I mean, you you've, I mean, you can't, I mean, it's not like something that you rush. I'm sure you want to get a product to market, but getting it there the right way with the right things involved, I mean, is, is obviously more important when clearly when life and death are on on the line here. Yeah, it is. And that was actually one challenge for us because as a startup, you know, the challenge, you know, you never know if you built the right thing until your customers get their hands on it. So usually you want to get something out there as soon, you know, you don't think you know, you don't think you know, you have to be skeptical of your own understanding, right? You want to get things into your customers' hands early. You want to get that feedback early. Um, And so that was a challenge from the beginning for us. You know, how do we do this when we have to have the system then go through certification before anyone can deploy it in production? And 
the way we ended up addressing that challenge is we sort of had a multi-phase development process where we actually took some early prototypes to customer sites to get feedback. And then we actually even had a non-certified early prototype version of our system that we we sold. And um, our customers actually want, because they were so excited about this technology, they've sort of been, they've been waiting for this. And, and so they were actually willing to, to put down money for systems that they could not in fact deploy in production, but they would be able to test in their labs. So we had a couple of large manufacturers that, you know, not not every not every little manufacturer is going to have resources to do this, but the big ones do. You know, they have advanced technology groups that um, that really look at okay, what's going to be on the factory floor in two years, in five years, right? And so they they bought these systems that they so that they could learn about this technology, and then now now that we have our certified product, all of those have now converted into. Now they've bought certified systems and they're doing the next stage of of testing and prototyping and, and looking at production rollouts. They are going through their process of looking at your your technology and deploying it on their factory floor. That's right. Claire, looking out two years, five years, ten years, you know, where do you see um, the future of human and robot collaboration? Do you ever see an instance where somebody is working literally side by side with one of those giant robotic arms installing a an engine block on the uh, you know on an automotive floor? Yes, I absolutely do think that that is where we are going. I mean, I think that you know, twenty years ago, maybe even ten years ago. Um, in the 80s, when we started doing continuous improvement and, you know, everybody was all about, you know, make the same thing, but make it better and better and better, you know, fewer and fewer quality problems and less inventory and just really streamline the process. And the thing is that, and, and so maybe we had a vision of lights out manufacturing, you know, we'll just run these machines all day and you won't have any people in there. And the fact is, though, that we don't make the same thing over and over and over and over again. We've used all of these new technology advances to make better and better and newer things all the time. And we've really gotten to a place where almost you could say the pace of innovation in our society, the limiting factor in many cases is manufacturing. You know, your your design cycles for, for new devices are so short, the time it takes to bring up a line could be longer. And you would never amortize the cost of full automation of that line over the lifetime of that product before you're making something new and better. And so really that that flexibility and judgment that humans have is is so critical. And so I think really what we're making that that collaboration between humans and robots more and more and more seamless is really where we need to go, making it so you can instead of saying, okay, well, this whole work cell, is this going to be an automated work cell or is this going to be a manual work cell? What you're instead saying is let's break this process step down into its constituent parts. And, you know, which parts is a human going to do and which parts should a robot do? So, you know, your robot will move your engine block into place and then a human will attach your wiring harness. And those, that robot and that human can be right side by side working on the same process step in the same work cell. So, we really see that while today we're focusing on an individual work cell with a single robot, the the next steps for us are are basically to build to make that a distributed system. So really across your across your workspace, across your factory, you can just have humans and robots collaborating wherever that's needed. And so that can be something where as as our engineers are figuring out how to build a manufacturing line, 
for each step, they're really just saying, what's the best way to do this with all of the resources we have available? And that means that robots do what robots are good at and people do what people are good at. And, you know, that makes often better jobs for for people. Right. Rather than, like you said, trying to turn a robot, you know, trying to make a robot think like a human and act like a human, just make it a, a better robot. That's right. Exactly. I think in some way, in so, it's interesting because robotics and artificial intelligence, right, they're always very intertwined. Um, and sometimes inspiration from humans and from the natural world and all that can be can be very useful. But it can actually sometimes in some ways be almost distracting and missing the true value of robotics. Like you were saying, you know, I mean, let humans be the best humans I mean, they can be and let robots be the best robot they can be. Stop trying to make one into the other. That's exactly right. And and safety is is the key to that. You know, you have to be able to do that in a way that is that is safe. And that's why, you know, when when we were looking at uh, the industrial automation space and saying, hey, you know, we've got all these new sensing technologies. We have all these powerful computers now. You know, what can we do that we couldn't do five or 10 years ago? What's the highest value thing? And and there's lots of specific, you know, you were mentioning there, there are a million different things you can use machine vision for in a. Um, in a factory, but most of those are specific to one particular kind of manufacturing. You know, you're doing palletizing, you're doing each picking, you're doing, you know, um, you know, doing machine tending, you're doing parts inspection. Like they're all, you know, they're they're very useful, but they're but they're limited, right? Whereas this idea, yeah, very single function. That's right. Whereas this idea of letting humans and robots work together, everybody that uses robots wants that. It's universal. You know, so it goes across, you know, we've got customers in durable goods manufacturing, we've got customers in logistics, we've got customers in aerospace, like all electronics, everybody that uses robots, everyone that uses automation. And so it just seemed like the most valuable universal problem um, for us to take on. As all great things, it's easier said than done. Exactly. So it's been a a privilege to be part of of making this happen, really. So Claire, I want to thank you so much for being on our podcast today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've actually, I've learned a lot over the course of this and, and, and all of our conversations. Well, thanks. This has been a lot of fun. These are, as you can tell, topics near and dear to my heart. So it's uh, it's always great to be able to talk about them with someone that has understanding and interest in, in a lot of these fields. Thank you for listening to the first season of The Tech Between Us. We'll be taking a quick break and returning in 2022, exploring even more tech trends and topics. Until then, discover more Empowering Innovation Together content at mauser.com slash empowering-innovation.